Hey, welcome back to The Craft. I'm Colby and I'm here with my friend Carter. And today we are talking about one of our favorite books, Steal Like an Artist by Austin Cleon. Yeah, we've talked about this on the podcast numerous times. I don't even know how many times we've talked about it. But if you listen back through episodes, you'll hear us reference this. And we're usually also talking about how we ought to do a book review of this. So this one's been in the works for a while now. Still Like an Artist has got a very basic, I won't say basic, but it's got a simple grounding idea. And the simple grounding idea is that the creative act, being an artist, is not something that happens in a vacuum. Where do we get ideas? On the first couple pages, Cleon says, we steal them. He's got a great quote from Picasso to start us off. It says, artist theft. And so the main central idea that Cleon explores is that when we are creating something, we're creating something that's intertextual. We're always pulling from other things. T.S. Eliot, who Cleon cites here at the beginning, is kind of a beginning epigram, has a quote about mature artists stealing, but he's also got a great essay, Talent and the Individual Artist, or it might be the other way around for the title, where he talks about how art is always happening within a long line of tradition. And so he's got a great quote where he says the, you know, the past, the present ought to be altering the past, and the past ought to be directing the present. And so it's 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 a mutual back and forth here where we're not just emanating ideas out of nowhere. We're finding things that inspire us, and we're finding things that we find compelling, and then we're not just copying them, right? The whole steel idea has got like another level to it, right? We're finding the principle, or we're finding the essence of what's compelling, and as we try to engage with that, we're ultimately going to make it our own. And so it's not that we're echoing ideas from other people, when we take them and transform them just by the very nature of being a different subject, the idea itself is going to get transformed. And so the kind of title of the book is that ideal, still like an artist, but then he goes on to discuss 10 other things that he finds to be compelling and helpful in the creative process. And so I think for this podcast, we're going to jump around the book a little bit, the format, if you haven't read it, it's graphic, it's easy to read, short sections, clean, small, packable. What else you want to say about the the format, Colby? It's a really beautiful book. It's like a little square, like, you know, you flip through it. Each page probably doesn't have more than like, I don't know, this is a total guess, but like 100 words or something. Like it's a very light read, you know, lots of beautiful graphs like you said yeah 10 chapters Part of it, is it a trilogy so, or is it there are four of them that's we should mention that too uh, i think it's a trilogy yeah so there's still like an artist show your work and keep going so it almost echoes a uh, sort of creative first principles create revise share sustain almost you know similar vein but yeah i would love to just like jump around some of the spots so if someone I feel like a lot of the audience probably has heard, read this before because a lot of people are friends too and we we speak about this book constantly. But um, I think it'd be cool to like go through and just talk through our favorite chapters and just almost like a refresher of what we get out of this book and 
kind of encouraging each other through that. Sure. Sounds like a plan. I wrote a couple down that stuck out to me. Do you have any that stick out to you before or you want me to dive into mine? Yeah, let's start with yours. So the first one that I wrote down is, I don't know if it's the title of the chapter or a section. Let me pull it up here. So page 15, there's this idea called climb your family tree. And this is really about just kind of ties into something I mentioned a couple episodes ago, just thinking through how do you uh, master the craft over a long period of time? How do you like become better at your discipline? So I've been thinking about how I need to study the greats in music production and understand, you know, the history of music production, the history of the recording arts and those things. Right. And so this, this idea is really similar to that. He talks about, uh, he says, let me just read this section. Marcel Duchamp said, I don't believe in art. I believe in artists. This is actually a pretty good method for studying. If you try to devour the history of your discipline all at once, you'll choke. Instead, chew on one thinker, writer, act, artist, activist, role model. You really love study everything there is to know about that thinker. Then find three people that thinker loved and find out everything about them. Repeat this as many times as you can climb up the tree as far as you can go. Once you build your tree, it's time to start your own branch. So I just think that's such a, you know, short, impactful idea to just study one person at a time. And so like finding your inspirations, inspirations essentially, and going through that. I'm curious if you done that with anyone or yeah, any thoughts on that? I just love that concept. Yeah. I mean, we even mentioned this last podcast with the documentary running down the dream with, but who's that by David? Yeah, we might have actually mentioned the exact idea. Yeah, I think something very um, similar. I can't remember that, his name. That we can, uh, we can situate ourselves by knowing the broader field of whatever the discipline is. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's natural that we are going to be influenced by what we're moved by. The things that influence us by their very nature of influencing us they're going to change how we write or change how we photograph or change how we compose just by nature of finding them compelling. And so I think what this is helpful is that we kind of shift from this being a passive thing, like we're just receiving in, and we start being intentional and like tracing the historical development of some of these ideas. I think it's a really helpful thing to do. One of the tasks that I always find myself doing within philosophy or critical theory is trying to trace the evolution of ideas because then you get such a more comprehensive and helpful understanding of who's talking to who, how the ideas are responding to each other and changing and trying to address the shortcomings or what they conceive as the problematic aspects of what came before them. And that's something that I feel like It's not going to happen on accident, and I wish I'd paid more attention to this broader evolution of certain fields of knowledge in school. (laughs) I wish I'd kind of traced that Mm. better because it gives you such a more holistic understanding. If you can gauge where the tradition is, then you can start to understand how it changes, and I think that helps us better understand our current position in respect to the tradition. I mean, we've talked about this before. It's like, you don't know, how do you know what you're going to do unless you know what's been done? 
It's it's as basic as that. So I think it in one in one way we're always being influenced by the things that we love. But this is another step. This is saying, no, let's be intentional about seeing how the things that we love even came to be. Right. And so you had mentioned like Bob Dylan in that documentary, right? Going back to Woody Guthrie and going back to this tradition of folk singers. Tracing that family tree, we could just keep on moving back. And so I think just having that larger arc of whatever history of thought that you're trying to engage with, to me, I think it's almost like a prerequisite of being able to enter a field. Like I wouldn't, there's a certain, I don't know, respect you have to bring to it that's, that kind of is a humility, I think, of let me see what's been done before, before I think that I can go and add to this you know, great tradition of what's, what's happening. At least that's kind of how I conceive it in my own. So art. here's my here's my problem, is that there's so much music and there's so much that I haven't listened to still, and so it's just it is a little daunting, you know what I mean, to like figure yeah. out, do I pick a genre and say I'm really trying to grow in this genre, so I'm going to like study the people in this genre, or do I just pick the producers? It's so interesting. Like I've been learning more about Rick Rubin and just picked up his book, The Creative Act, which I'm really excited to get into later. But he has produced for so many different genres, you know, heavy metal, hip hop, folk, pop, you know, all these different things. And of course there's overlap between those, but it's like so much music to study and learn that's out there. And so I'm just, that's kind of my, that's what I wrestle with here, I think. it's just So is it that, what's your concern there? That, that you, it's going to be a disorientation, too many options? Yeah, it's just like overwhelming, and then I just don't do anything. Because <laughs> it's just like, I don't know where to start. You know, I think that's why it's helpful to read this and say, like, he's like, pick one person. Because if I start doing research on things like this, I'll make a list, I'll have like 10 producers, 10 sure. artists, and then it just grows so quickly. That's like 10 albums, that's already like 10 hours of stuff to check out. Sure. You know, and... So I think it's just the overwhelm of like how much, and I mean, for 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 you, like the history of ideas and things, that's even more because it's like, how many hours does it take to read a book? You know, like a 400 page book from 200 years ago. Sure. I mean, so <clears throat> I don't know. I think that's, I think the challenge for me is just like starting small and whittling it down and, and not getting overwhelmed by trying to like do it all at once. He has this thing where he's like, take the branches on your tree mix and match them, like come up with like your different inspirations, mix and match the things that they would like and then make what they would like into something new. So that's almost an interesting idea of like, how could I take two or three of my inspirations, pull the different threads there and then weave them into something that I'm going to make as a way to mix and match and steal like an artist, you know? That's a great prompt. I think even just going to Wikipedia, I mean, (laughs) just do your inner, your links on, you know, one Wikipedia page leads to other things. I mean, that's a naturally, naturally, I said, you know, that's a, a way to narrow your constraints. And so in one sense, yes, you're dealing with a massive amount. But for me, I'm really trying to get a grip on American literature in the last 200 years. That's a lot easier than trying to gauge mm. the history of all philosophy in all <laughs> for all time. You know, you can, uh, you can kind of yeah. develop Western philosophy from Plato and Aristotle and kind of hit the highlights going through the last two millennia. But, you know, 
that's one kind of field of knowledge that's helpful, but within the craft, what I'm really trying to get at is much more narrow, right? Scholarly, it's got a specific time period, specific concern in nature writing, predominantly literature of the American West. So like my dissertations, literature of the American West at the turn of the 20th century, right? Early 20th century. So that's pretty narrow. And so I definitely agree that you've got to have a way to to give yourself a field to explore because otherwise you're going to stay way too surface level. And I think all the really meaningful connections with your influences and with history are deep, right? I mean, it's the deep cuts on albums that you haven't listened to that I think can be so productive. It's not just going to, oh, I should listen to him. I'm going to listen to his greatest hits album. You know, I'm going to listen to four songs from this artist. It's when you listen to four albums from them that I think you get a whole broader, deeper, more multifaceted understanding of who they are. I mean, just like a poet. I mean, you could read their top four poems, but it's different when you read poems from across a 60-year career and you start noticing this is their early stuff, what they're concerned about. Later in life, right, they're changing. Maybe they're changing different meter or rhyme or topical concern. What are the similarities? What are the you know uh, continuities? And so I think it's that by setting those narrow parameters, it gives you the opportunity to go deeper. And I think that's what that's when I think you get into the rich roots of discovering more than the, the surface level genealogy, maybe. Mm. Well, that's really helpful because it's, I think that's maybe where I'm getting stuck is like, I haven't whittled it down yet to that specific genre, specific time period. And I think that would really help me to say, I'm focused on whether it's electronic music or pop music or hip hop. And I think right now it's probably like pop. And if you think about like recorded music has been around for no more than 200 years. What is it? 150 years? I don't know. It's not been a super long time. So it massively narrows down already for me. And then maybe there's a su- some subgenres or some more specific ways that I can keep reducing it down. You know what I mean? Like maybe I just need to be concerned about the last 50 years or something. Like I'm not really at this point, is it, I don't know, is it going to be beneficial for me to go back and learn like, listen to the pop music from the 1920s, you know, a hundred years ago. Sure. Maybe not, you know, maybe, 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 but probably not, but listening to what the Beatles were doing or what the, you know, what was happening in the forties and fifties and sixties and sixties, seventies, eighties, especially as some of this more like synths and the technology, the electronic music started to happen, you know, that probably is a lot more for me to like glean from that area. So yeah, and you're yeah, going to have to hit building Thanks. blocks, too. I mean, they're, they're the big ones that you have to hit. And it's not to say that you, you can't read the canonical stuff or listen to the canonical stuff, because until you get that kind of large framework, it from that large framework, you can start getting into the, the non-canonical writers or the non-canonical albums. And then there is something to be said. You do need a 30,000-foot view as well as the right in front of your view. Yeah. I did take two history of Western music classes or something like that in college. And I cannot tell you that I remember a lot of details, to be honest. It's so it's studying on your own. You get a lot more than whenever you're studying inside of a classroom. I feel like (laughs) depending on 
how engaged you are in that class or how interested you are at the time. So for sure. Well, that's good stuff, man. What I've got a couple more, but do you have a chapter or section that really stuck out to you? Let's keep on rolling. Why don't you pick another one? Then I'll, I'll jump in. So go to page 39. There's a graph called good theft versus bad theft. So there's two columns and on the left side you have good theft, honor, study, steal from many, credit, transform, and remix. And then on the right you have bad theft, degrade, skim, steal from one, plagiarize, imitate, rip off. So I thought that was, this is kind of like near the middle of the book and it's almost like a core concept of like how do you compare stealing like an artist to literal plagiarism because that's an obvious point to oh, think through is, so you know, based on the book's title you know steal from many instead of stealing from one it's a remix of that it's transforming ideas instead of imitating ideas it's crediting instead of plagiarizing and that's definitely a theme that you see like with i think we've talked about john mayer mentioning people he's failed to be and you know john bellion in a lot of his songs he quotes so many producers and artists and cultural references that he's drawing from and and then there's a study versus skim so it just shows like you said earlier kind of just like an honoring the history and honoring those that came before you and paying homage in a way yeah i mean there's the great tsla quote at the beginning of the book that's just exactly this i think where he he writes immature poets imitate mature poets steal Bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it better, make it into something better, or at least something different. The good poet welds his theft into a whole of feeling which is unique, utterly different from from which it was torn. And I mean, it's the same idea. I mean, it's are you repackaging something, or are you actively engaging with it? Right, because I think there's. Perhaps there's two ways to go wrong here, and I'm, I'm kind of pulling from Harmut Rose's idea of resonance, which we might do a book review later on. He talks about how mm-hmm. we can be too passive in that the thing that's interacting with us crushes our voice, where we don't have anything, we're just repackaging. I mean, he's talking about this in a, in a variety of different ways, but I think it holds here. If we're just taking our influence and we're not adding anything to it, and we're not resisting it in some ways, then it's just an echo of the thing. Like our voice on our end is silent. And so he talks about it, you know, when we're resonating and we're engaging with it and we're pushing back against the world and the world's pushing against us, it's like a vibrating wire he talks about. And you think about this in conversation. If you're just motoring over someone in conversation and they don't have a voice, right, their end of the wire is silent. But when they're, you know, resisting you in some ways and there's the whole field of the inaccessible in them and the inaccessible in you and, and, and you're, you're moving back and forth and you're both influencing each other, that's when the wire's vibrating, right? And we're like, wow, this conversation is fulfilling. This is something that is right, life-giving. And I think it's similar with art here. The first danger would be we're completely passive and we lose our voice and we're just producing an echo of what's already been done. The other way would be to quash the voice of your influence. 
and completely dominate it with your own voice and your own will. And so then it's not speaking to you at all, right? You're speaking over it. And so you've got to, I think, find that balance between you're being influenced, but you're also giving it resistance. And so your voice is getting mixed with the voice of the influence. And so you're not being too passive and you're also not being too domineering. And so I think that's when that's when the steal happens, when it's really beneficial, is you're not becoming an echo and you're not ignoring the tradition. You're bringing those two together. Mm, I love that. I think that's beautiful. It's a it's that tension of of making something that's reflective of the past, but not a mere copy and just basically not losing yourself, not losing your voice along the way. I think that's really good, man. So if I can jump to the next one, I just want to rapid fire a couple more. Creativity is subtraction. This is page 136. He talks about, you know, I've got a friend who always brings up, uh, he's a photographer, producer, and he, he always says like constraints are good for creativity, you know? And I've definitely gotten a lot of value out of that idea myself and I don't know if it deserves much expanding but it's just the idea of reducing you know less decisions or less options means less decisions means it's easier to move forward you know telling this quote from Jack White guitarist artist telling yourself you have all the time in the world all the money in the world all the colors in the palette anything you want that just kills creativity I think that's so true. If you have, sometimes I load up Ableton, I'm working on a song and there's just so many sounds and ide- and things I can pull in and it's like, I don't know what to do. It'd be better if I just had like two or three options and then I would be focused on the right things, you know? I just think that's really good. Yeah, that is great. I mean, I think I saw a little clip of John Mayer the other day saying like, if it doesn't work for him on an acoustic guitar and his voice, it's not a, it's not an idea. Like that was his... He was talking about, you know, it's not just going and seeing if we can go right to the beat making or right to the production. It's saying if it doesn't work in its constrained version for him on the guitar with a voice, then it's not an idea. And I think that's trying to, I mean, that seems to me to be this, right? It's trying to impose limits and saying, if I can't, if I'm not compelled by it in its most rudimentary form, then I don't want to build a whole apparatus around it if the core of it is not something that is compelling. I mean, that makes sense. Are there any places in writing that you do this or you use constraints well, one that we've talked about before is imitation. I think it's a great way to practice doing like intentional drills. I think we caught it in an episode, like trying to write a poem using the same meter and rhyme as a different poem, right? I mean, for poetry, I mean, the the feat, the poetic feat, like an I am, the, the stressed and unstressed, or I am would be unstressed, stressed. That's a constraint, right? You can't use certain words when you're writing in poetic meter, right? You have to keep your feet, the number of feet per line or the number of syllables, and right? That's a method of, I mean, poetry in some ways is a method of constraint. Robert Frost said, I don't want to write 
free verse poetry because it seems like I'd be playing tennis without the net, which is a great quote because the net in tennis, right, is the constraint, right? He's like, what's the point if we're just whacking the ball back and forth and there's no sort of structure to it, which I love because I think that's a great example of saying I'm going to write this in iambic pentameter or whatever is giving yourself constraints which are forcing the productivity. And so I think that's a great way. So in drills, in, I guess, poetry is just the nature of the art form has restraints. And so I guess with music too, I mean, there's just certain restraints that you have, although it may seem like the restraints are too wide to be useful. So I think some of it's just probably taking survey of maybe identifying the restraints that you have and, and, and asking yourself if it's, if it's helpful to impose more restraints or not. Contextual, I guess. Yeah, that's really good. One of my favorite pages in this book, it's literally fallen out because I've probably flipped here so many times, is page 83, and it's called The Life of the Project. I'm sure that we've mentioned this like three times on the podcast already, but in case anyone hasn't heard this, it's my favorite graph. So the life of a project, it's this basic graph and it just goes like, it's like a hot, it's like an L shape on its, on its side almost it just goes straight down and then it back up a little bit. Halfway. Why would you not call and, it a V? <laughs> yeah, that's a V. You're right. <laughs> it's like an L, but sideways. If you, if you turn an L so that it looks like I've a V. because I've remixed it, you know? <laughs> I was stealing like an artist. I was making it different. I was pushing back. There you go. That's I'm right. That's that's a better way. It's like a V. With I see what you're saying with an L, though. Being I just yeah, it's an L. It's an L. <laughs> I think it's because it's because the page is falling out of the book for me, so I'm looking at a different angle. How about that? <laughs> if you turn the cello sideways, it's a bass cello. <laughs> okay. So, anyways, it's a L. It's a V. Whatever. It's a chart. It's a graph, and it goes down from left to right, and it's basically just taking you from this journey. So. I'll pull out a couple of highlights here. It says, starting out, you know, this is the best idea ever. You're at like the beginning of the project. You're going to start a new album or write that novel or maybe that screenplay. It's like finally time. You have the perfect idea. It's going to be the best thing ever. It's going to change your life. And then you start working on it. It's like, okay, this is harder than I thought. And then it's, this is going to take some work. And then this is, this sucks. It's boring. And then you have the dark night of the soul. And that's kind of where it bottoms out. And then... If you push through that, you get a little bit further up, starts to kind of climb back up just a little bit to it will be good enough to finish because I'll learn something for the next time all the way up to it's done and it sucks, but it's not as bad as I thought. So there you have it from one of my favorite parts of the book and it was stolen from Maureen McHugh. And yeah, I just, it, I feel like it resonates with me. Like it happens to me all the time. I, I literally start out, of course, every idea is always like, this is the best. This is going to be amazing. And then get started on it. And it just inevitably takes more time. It's 10 times harder. Doesn't sound like I wanted it to in my head, but it does get done. And it's not as bad as I thought. So. Yeah. And I like that. I like that it doesn't get, it doesn't go all the way back up to the best idea ever. So this is when the L shape is important, right? It, it doesn't get as high. And I think that's true, right? <laughs> I mean, we've got aspirations for it that, you know, that are good and helpful. But understanding that the output's going to be, okay, maybe this is not the fulfillment of what I hoped, 
but it's still useful. And I think it's just helpful to know this because it just gives you perspective that you're not, I don't know, you don't have to be frustrated. You can just understand it as part of the life cycle of a project. You know, you just you just kind of accept it in a almost stoic way of this is just a necessary part of the project. And I'm, that's fine, right? And so you don't have to hit the panic button. You know, am I a real artist? And, you know, mm. I can never do this. And I always end up here. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, if, if you understand that <laughs> as the, you know, you're going to get to these boring parts of work. If you just understand that's a prerequisite or just part of it, I mean, it just liberates the process for you, I think. Yeah, that's so true. I've actually found like recently there's a time in the afternoons at work where I'll get really tired and often just discouraged in the and it's because I'm so tired I think you know it just I've I've come to a place where I know like this is the time of day where I'm really tired I'm not as productive and it's easy to feel kind of discouraged and so knowing that it's very helpful to catch myself in those moments when I get discouraged and like oh I'm not really there's no really need to be discouraged or to let this spiral because it's just three o'clock. Like it's that's lifestyle. What uh, yeah, the life cycle of the work day. It's a season, you know, and it's like you come out the end at five o'clock and then it's like, oh, I'm feeling energized again. I'm getting, you know, it's just so helpful to have that in your head because otherwise you can be, get distracted by it and be like overthinking things or worrying about, you know, what am I, what's going wrong here? What do I need to change? Sometimes it's just like, no, this is a part of life, you know, it's freeing. Yeah, I think so. That's another good paradigm. One that I like. I've been hogging the mic here. No. One that I like is be boring. Page 116. Mm. It's it's a subtitle. It's the only way to get work done. I think there's a lot of truth in this. The idea that at least, I don't know, the idea of doing the action is oftentimes much more appealing than the actual action itself right the idea of those well right we've we've encountered these moments of i hate to use this word but flow where things are flowing i knew that was the word i know i hate it so much but these moments of um (laughs) we'll get to this maybe when we do uh, the review of the heidegger documentary but these moments that we are resonating with whatever work we're doing and you're like, this is it, right? You're, you're making that new sound. You're getting that perfect light for a photograph. You're writing something, and it's just coming to the page. The zenith of our craft, we love that, and we imagine what that looks like, and that's the, the height of it, but most of the time it's just doing the work, right? It's just, it's just kind of the boring what Cleon says, right? Nine to five schedule where you sit down, you don't go do something wild. You just sit down and you start working, right? And maybe 75% of your workday is in the, the normal, you're not crazy inspired, you're not reading anything that changes the way that you'll view life for the rest of your life. You're not, you're, you're not having some, you know, epiphany that changes everything. You know, most of the time is just learning, right? Or just working, and so I think it's a great thing that be boring, right? You don't have to go do these wild lifestyles to somehow cultivate some creativity, right? You don't have to go 
chain smoke to 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 write a sonnet or something, right? Or, or whatever. Like there's there's a kind of plain side of the creative process that we often love the eclectic and eccentric artist, right? Who's staying up, you know, Picasso's staying up till three a.m. and sleeping in till eleven o'clock in the morning, and you know, we we love that kind of you know, eccentricity, but oftentimes it's not. And I, I think that's really helpful for me just to be like, oh yeah, okay, this is kind of boring. That's fine. This is in, I'm learning, I'm growing. And there are going to be moments where you can recognize that you're growing or have accomplished something. But a lot of the times you're just like a plant that, you know, you've only grown a couple millimeters that day and doesn't feel like much, but it's just part of the process. And so I think there's also some patience involved in this. Patience is boring. You know, we, we want more and more distraction, more and more stimulus, more and more engagement, right? I think the entire entertainment industry, right? We shrunk down the size of our engagement. I think they did studies that like you can stay focused on something on a screen. Now it's like, under 30 or 40 seconds. It used to be like two minutes a couple of years ago. But our, our focus is narrowing, right? We've moved from long format YouTube videos to TikTok videos that are 10 seconds long. So with all of this, to do the work is just boring because it requires long durations of attention that is counter-cultural for us, right? The, the rest of the world is accelerating in a lot of ways, but the artistic process is always going to be slow because it's those moments of patient work that sometimes get struck with that lightning bolt, right? But but most of it's not the lightning bolt. And I just think that's a great, I'm going to jump off here, but I think that's yeah. a great reminder. That's that's a wonderful reminder. I heard one person say it. It was a Matt Vella YouTuber. I like, he was like, a lot of people think that making a YouTube video feels like watching a YouTube video. <laughs> And that's a great way to put it because it's like you you look at the video, great. like the montage sequence of someone making a beat or painting this amazing mural or taking a photo in the golden hour, right? And it's like that's the zenith, like you said. That's the that's like the height of what it what it looks like and feels like, and everything's perfect. Or they're on set at this like movie that's going to make their career, but what you don't see is them doing these small you know, insignificant seemingly shows or projects or tuning the vocals for two hours. It's like these boring things that you have to do that feel like so tedious, you know. Those are a lot of what make up the craft. But we don't think about our other jobs, I think, the same way. Like you you just know that if you work at a restaurant, you have to sweep the floors and you have to clean the bathrooms. And it sucks but that's just a part of you know the process of working at a restaurant but it's easy to look at the creative things and only want the sexy part of it i think yeah i think so, that's yeah, that's really good man. yeah that's dead on there's so many more we could go into i mean this just you just flip to any page and it's like there's a there's a great thought here it's really just gets your mind spinning and i think the other good thing about this book is it's just like go do something, take action. Sure. Sit down, grab a piece of paper, make something small, stay at it every day, get a consistent flow of 
work coming out. You know, it's very action oriented, very practical and very down to earth about how it's hard to stay inspired and creative. And so don't try to just do everything in a vacuum, like look around for inspiration. And so, yeah, one of the last points I'll make before I think we're getting close to landing the plane. He's got a point about doing something with your hands and how he sets up his desk as analog and kind of digital. And I know Cleon does a mm. lot of kind of, I don't know if you call it graphic design, but right, he's always doing collages and whenever you get his newsletter, right, he's got his journals and they're always so visual. That is something that I have kind of adopted in my own workspace. I've got my computer and monitors sit in the corner and then I try to never bring any of my, I mean, rarely, my computer's over to my desk. My desk, I've got my books. That's where I'm going to read. That's where I'm going to, you know, write. That's not a space where I do screens. And I've really liked that. I mean, this is relatively new within the last year that I've just basically needed more room to get this monitor. But then I just said, okay, maybe I'll just make a divide here. And it's something I really like because you kind of sequester different tasks and the desk gets to kind of be its own thing. And so I've, I've found that to be helpful. Um, and so that is a chapter in here. Do you take like when you're reading stuff, do you take notes on paper only or how does that work? Cause I know you like digital notes. Yeah. I keep my computer over in the corner and so I take digital notes, but I don't read there. And so I, you know, it's, it's a kind small space, back. but in the corners, yeah. I'll go write a note and then I'll be reading. Probably got quiet there and turned away. I'll, I'll still be reading at the desk. And so I, I don't take my computer and move it over to my desk. Is that's the desk stays for papers, physical, tangible things, which I really like. And if I could do more stuff with paper, I would. And I think eventually when I teach, literature courses, Lord willing. The writing rhetoric courses I teach now have a ton of assignments. But literature courses, I'm going to have physical papers. It's it's so much nicer to to grade and, and write and handle physical uh, documents. And some of my professors, you know, a lot of my grad school professors still have us turn in physical papers because it's a pain to do things on screens. And so I think there is just a value of trying to find those moments in your work day that you can be tactile, and maybe setting up even your environment to promote that and be intentional with it. So that's something that I've kind of, you know, didn't integrate immediately, but I imagine that idea was sitting there from this book and kind of manifested a lot later. Mm-hmm. That's cool, man. I think there's other areas that could be applied to, just like, yeah, just having an area where I've played around with it, but I haven't been very good about it. But having an area where this is where I do my reading, this is kind of where I unwind or relax. This is where I work. Because it gets into this work from home thing too, where it's like, if you work from home like I do, then, you know, you are always at home and your workplace is your, it could be the same place you hang out, where you work on your side projects, where you make your dinner, where you, you know, sleep, all these things. And so it's hard to like, there's something t- helpful, I think, about having a space and saying there's a, a purpose for this space because it prepares your mind for what you do in that space. I'm a huge fan of that. Absolutely. Because I spend a lot of time at home too, with just you know, outside of class. And there's just something that's so helpful about having a space in an office or in a corner mm. that you're doing work. 
and then you can read in different places. I mean, it's one of those, it's the same reason why people say don't go to your bed to hang out and watch something. Go to sleep in your bed. Make that a place where you sleep and then, you know, unwind mm-hmm. somewhere else. I mean, it's the same kind of advice with that. I think there's, it's just mm. helpful because we're embodied people. We're not some ethereal mind that's just floating around. Like we've got bodies and we're in spaces and mm-hmm. the chair you sit in matters. And are you near a window? I mean, all of these sort of things, you know, filter into how we do creative work and how we do work in general. So I think being intentional about that is really helpful. I think there's an episode in you based on topics of conversations we had, I feel like we could have a good conversation about the the role of place and environment on creativity. Like that would be an interesting topic. Yeah, that would be great. Maybe we'll do it. Do you want to dive into the quote of the week? Sure. There's two options. We can do one from Steal Like an Artist or I have a Rick Rubin quote. That would be good too. But we can do that in another episode. So... Let's do the Rick Rubin quote. So Rick Rubin just came out with this book called The Creative Act. And it's really, it's like 400 pages. It's a beautiful, simple cover. little picture of a record, I think, on the front. That cover has got you written all over it. You, you sent me a picture of that. I'm like, that is, minimalistic. A, that is a Colby Shim cover. 100%. It's kind of like a... Uh, I don't even know what you would call it, like creative meditations almost. So there's 400 pages. There's, I don't know, seven, there's 78 areas of thought. Hmm. Just things like everyone is a creator, beginner's mind, habits, seeds, essence, right before our eyes, the energy in the work, uh, what we tell ourselves, how to choose, spontaneity, just all these different super kind of, like abstract concepts, but then he tells these really, you know, simple stories and ideas. And I haven't read a lot of it yet, but I'm really enjoying what I have read so far. You you said there were 78, 70 some. Yeah. 78. Well, look out. We're going to do a 78, 78 week series. We'll go one by one through them. (laughs) We finished in a couple of years. (laughs) I hope you like series. Oh my gosh. So the, quote that I pulled spoke to me. I'll explain afterwards. Let's just get into it. Living life as an artist is a practice. You're either engaging in the practice or you're not. It makes no sense to say you're not good at it. It's like saying, I'm not good at being a monk. You are either living as a monk or you're not. We tend to think of the artist's work as the output. The real work of the artist is a way of being in the world. And so the part I highlighted was just, we tend to think of the artist's work as the output. The real work of the artist is a way of being in the world. So for me, I think I can be so focused on performance, so focused on the output. Am I getting a lot done today? Have I, you know, I'll feel good about myself if I like knocked out a lot of tasks at work today. And if I only got one or two done, I might feel a little bit bummed, you know, like Am I doing enough? Like, am I even deserve to be paid for this? And with creativity, it's the same type of thing. You know, it's like, I haven't made anything this week. I, I'm not even a real, you know, producer. I'm not even a real creative person. And of course, that's just unhelpful thinking, you know? So for me, just reading this, it's like, 
you're not only an artist when you're sitting down at the typewriter writing, you know, or sitting at your computer making a song. Like there's an element of having the eyes and the ears and the mind of someone who's striving to learn, striving to create, striving to respond to the experiences they have in the world and share those with other people and put them into a song or put them into a book, put them into a body of work in a way that other people can feel that. It's not only when you're working on the output that you're an artist. So it was almost just like something I needed to hear and was really encouraging. What have you, did you read through this? Like what's your thought on this? Yeah. You'd sent me this this week, I think. And Oh, nice. I forgot. I think it's great. I mean, whenever someone says being in the world, you know, I immediately think about Heidegger and, and think about, I mean, it's a central concept for him in being in time. And I think the idea that being an artist or like a monk is less about the quantitative, what have you done? It's more about how do you position yourself towards the world and towards yourself in this more phenomenological, deeper way in which you live and be and interact. I mean, that's just so, so much more rich than you're an artist if you check these boxes. I mean, anytime I think we impose quantitative stuff, almost, I mean, you're, you're leaving things out because, like we have said before, I mean, the way that you... <laughs> You know, when you get up, what you eat, all of these things affect your art, right? Art doesn't happen when you sit at the table. Mm-hmm. It's all of your life. It's the relationships that you have. It's the tragedy you undergo. It's the moment of of achievement or ecstasy that you experience. All of these things, that's the fabric of the art. And so I think understanding being an artist is something that's holistic and it has to do with the, the posture, I think that's the word I was looking for, the posture in which you relate to the world, I think it's right on and helpful. That's well said. Dude, this was a great conversation. I think maybe to land the plane, we should just give a shout out to Austin Cleon. I'd love to read his bio and share a couple of links to just send people to his work because we didn't add that in the intro. So this is at the back of the book. Just give a quick overview of Austin. He's a writer and artist, author of the redacted poetry collection, Newspaper Blackout, and his work has been featured on NPR's Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour, Wall Street Journal, and the art website 20by200.com. He lives in Austin, Texas, and you can learn more about his stuff at austincleon, that's K-L-E-O-N.com. And you mentioned earlier, Carter, he's got a cool newsletter. I don't know if I'm subscribed or not still, but... I have been at one point and it was really good. So yeah, I was going to plug that and just, yeah, I was just going to mention the newsletter, really quality newsletter, interesting, fun, helpful stuff. So definitely a great newsletter. Go subscribe. Nice dude. Any more thoughts before we hop off? This has been great. Go steal something. (laughs) I think that's it. A little, a little running tagline at the end. We did not mean any sort of physical that. <laughs> like, <laughs> nothing. Hey, thanks for listening to The Craft with Carter and Colby, where we share what we're learning about the creative process. 
If you're a writer, music producer, marketer, filmmaker, photographer, or you just love creativity, then this show is for you. Our cover art was designed by Elizabeth Newell. You can learn more about her work at elizabethnewelldesign.com. That's Elizabeth, N-E-W-E-L-L, design.com. And you can follow her on Instagram at elizabethisadesigner. If you like the show, there's three things you can do to help us out. First, subscribe so you learn when we post new episodes. Second, send the link to one of your friends who you think would enjoy the show. Uh, Really, word of mouth is going to be the the number one way we grow the show in any way. And three, if you have a topic you want us to cover or feedback about how we can improve the show or comments on what we've said, you can respond to heycraftpodcast at gmail.com, H-E-Y-C-R-A-F-T podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.